this morning as um, we jump into our message, I want to just acknowledge the opportunity, you know, to honor those who have um, gone before us in faith here at Parker Ford and how important that is um, to, you know, see all those people and know that um, even though you might not know them personally, there's a bunch of people that, you know, were up there that I don't know, uh, never met actually ever, and yet, like, still have that connection, right? Not just because of this building, not just because of Parker Ford, but because of their faithfulness, you know, and that um, how great it is that this morning when we're talking about remembering suffering and remembering struggles, that we got to honor people who we can remember had great faith in walking out their relationship with God, both individually and as a body. And um, that's just a beautiful picture as we go into uh, this morning's message. So I know it's the holiday season, and as you get into the holidays and you get closer and closer, there's two things that happen. One is the stress of realizing how much you don't have done yet for Christmas Day becomes more palpable in reality, but also the expectation of being joyful and being excited and being ready and amped up for the holiday. And this morning, I so want to play into the expectation and be able to be like, it's Christmas, it's like the expectation of the birth, it's so exciting, but we got to go through something first, right? And so just like when we come before um, the, the liturgical calendar, right, there's always um, Good Friday before Easter. This morning is kind of like that Good Friday. Because we're not going to sit here and get excited about the birth. But we're going to sit here and we're going to remember why we need a Savior why this birth is so important. And, and it's not because we, don't, we want to take away your joy. You know? It's not because we want to discourage you in the season. But it's because it's what God asks us to do. We're asked to remember the, stru- the struggles of those who have gone before us. We're asked to remember what those who have gone before us have done poorly so that we may not repeat that same path. And we sit in a spot in our relationship with God and in the storyline of the gospel where we get to end today with that fulfillment of a Savior being born. And we get to end today with that hope of a Savior coming again. But to really, really experience that, we got to remember the struggles. We got to remember our propensity to live the way our ancestors lived and the importance of the birth of our Savior. And to do that, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 78. And so, it, 
As we walk through Psalm 78 this morning, it will be on the screen above us. Um, But if you have your Bibles, you're also welcome to turn to that as well. So our series is Remember. And uh, looking at Zechariah, he is uh, the name that we are reflecting on. If you remember, he is the one who God breaks that 400-year silence with in the temple. And Zechar is kind of the origin, origin of Zechariah, which means remember. But Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And that's the hope we hold on to this morning. Because what the Lord remembers is the promise of the covenant that he made with us. What we can remember Well, it just depends what we want to remember, right? So as we kind of look and we remember the struggles of a people who followed Jesus, who followed God in the wilderness, or tried to follow God in the wilderness, it's it's not at all to bring up shame. It's not at all to make us feel less than. It is so that we can remember who we are and who God is. And we can remember what we have the capacity for, both for good and for evil. Because we walk with that tension in us all the time. We walk around with this choice every time, as much as cliche as it is, right? The the little angel on your one shoulder, the devil on the other, right? It's not that simple, but in that way, we have will to choose. And so we walk with that tension of do we choose well Or do we choose for ourselves? And we have to to come to an understanding of that. We have to come to an acceptance of that. Because if we don't embrace it, if we don't accept that that choice belongs and is a reality in our life, then we actually are going to get a lot more confused And we're going to struggle a lot more to walk with God than if we can embrace that and acknowledge that's a part of the process. That's a part of who we are. Brene Brown says, the irony is that we attempt to disown our difficult stories to appear more whole or more acceptable. But our wholeness, even our wholeheartedness, actually depends on the integration of all of our experiences, including the falls. And so falls aren't things that just happen to us. They're a part of our story. They help us grow. They help us understand. They help us put into perspective what we're going through, what we're living, who God is, who we are, who others are, who we are. And so our struggles, our falls, carry a lot of significance. And, and what I hope we, we can experience and what I hope we can and recognize is that our falls and our struggles, they're not who we are. God doesn't say we are our struggles. God says we are his children. And so our identity is in him. And that's why he wants us to understand, right? Don't Go with your struggles. Understand the struggles of your ancestors because I don't want you to think that that's what you are. 
the messages of failure, the messages of falling down. I don't want you to think and believe that's who you are. I want you to know that you are my child, that you are a chosen people. And so he presents this to us, and he wants us to remember so that we can choose to walk in an identity that he has given us, not in an identity that the lies and the failures and the struggles want to tell us. Psalm 78 is a mascal of Asaph. And so you might, um, some of your translations, if you have ESV, it says a mascal. A mascal is a psalm of instruction. So this is a psalm that was given to the people for instruction. It is a part of the wisdom psalms. So it's a psalm that is for us to, to know to hear. It's a psalm that's meant to be spoken so that the story of our ancestors, the story of the people of God is carried on. This psalm, Psalm 78, it carries this contrast of God's faithfulness and grace with the unbelief and rebellion of his people. One of the commentaries said, it's a sad recounting of how Israel's ancestors forgot the works of the Lord, but how the Lord graciously delivered them. So let's look, I'm going to read uh, the first eight verses of Psalm 78 this morning. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should be like their fathers, a stubborn, should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so Asaph here, he writes and gives us this introduction. This is the purpose, right? These first eight verses gives us, sets the stage for what we're going to get into. I will open, he says in verse two, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. This is a very common way that wisdom teachers write in that time. They write in parables. They write in dark sayings. They write in riddles. And we see this in Jesus, right? That he comes and he actually speaks in parables. He speaks in riddles. And so he is a part of this lineage. And, and the intention is because when I, we can learn something, right? A teacher can teach you something and you have the knowledge, but when we speak, it, when you hear something in parables, when you hear something in riddles, there's a different part of your brain that you have to engage. You have to engage your imagination. You have to 
challenge yourself to think outside of the knowledge that you have and use your imagination. My understanding of how we're wired, the biochemistry of who we are, is that when we engage our imagination, we create an experience. And it is by experience that we most find strength and confidence to believe in something. And so when there's a teaching that requires us to use our imagination, when there's an experience where, that we have in which, just, which, in which the fullness of our brain, left and right, is engaged, it creates a memory, it creates an experience that, a lot, that teaches us something, that we form a belief around. And so these teachings are not just to hear, to know. Oh, yes, this happened, right? But to actually have an experience with the word so that we can form steadfast foundational beliefs around what we hear. And so it also signifies the importance. Like, listen. Don't tune out. Pay attention. He goes on and he references, in verse 5, the appoint and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. And so he's very generational in thought here. And he's pulling back on Deuteronomy chapter 6. They have the commandments, but then in Deuteronomy 6, we hear of the greatest commandment. He says, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you hear the the similarity there, the generational commitment that Asaph is talking about in Psalm 78 and in Deuteronomy, the commitment, we got to have these everywhere, right? You got to know this law so you can teach it to your children and pass it down from generation to generation. And something similar too, not only is it about teaching them, but it correlates to this idea of heart, right? In Deuteronomy, it's not about knowing it, it's about it being here in our heart. And our heart is kind of this, this place of our soul. This is where it's like where belief comes out. The heart is this, this place where it's like experience gets validated there. And so this idea of having it on our heart means that it's not about just doing what it, you're told or just um, having the knowledge of this is right and this is wrong but it actually correlates to this experience, this need for belief, this part of us that's like, no, my heart is toward God, not toward myself. And the psalmist here, he gets that, he understands that, and he's recalling it in the minds of the people. He also, if we go further in in Deuteronomy 6 to verse 20, It says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, 
We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us from out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. So that we're all familiar with that story, right? It says, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all, the, all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. We understand why is this important. Why do we need to follow this command? Why do we need to pass this on generation to generation? Why is this so important? So that, right, in verse 24 there, commanded us to do all these things, so that we would fear the Lord our God for our good. Fear of the Lord is not because God just wants us all to be afraid of him. The fear of the Lord is for our good, so that we may preserve our life. Psalm 78, verse 7, so that, right, we should do this generationally so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. So we can see that God, he knows what he's doing. He's setting us up to succeed. See, the fear of the Lord, when we walk in the fear of the Lord, then we're focusing on him, which means we don't have the ability or the attention to focus on the other things that might cause us to throw him off the throne in our heart. And so when we can focus on God and have the fear of the Lord, then it's good, and it's for our good so that our life might be preserved. kind of set that, that stage and we and explain it that way because as we go further into 78, we're going to see that that's exactly what didn't happen. The Israelites did not walk in a fear of the Lord. The Israelites did not remember the works of their God. And as a result, a lot died. A lot of Israelites perished because they didn't walk in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 78, 9 to 43. It's a lot. So bear with me um, as we read through. And don't worry, we're not going to read all of the 72 verses, but we're going to take chunk this chunk. The Ephraimites, right? Ephraim is um, a son of Joseph, but gets the blessing from Jacob. Um, and so when we think about the, the lineage, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Ephraim, um, it kind of goes that way. So when you think about the covenant made with Abraham, think of it kind of down that line initially at this point. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. 
So we know when they were conquering the promised land, right, all the Israelites were supposed to fight together. Every tribe was supposed to help out every other tribe. And here we see Ephraimites total bailed, just walked away. So they turned back on the day of the battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zon, which Zon is a a city in Egypt that many of the Israelites would have recalled, and a lot of the uh, plagues and miracles of God at that time would have happened in that region. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. So that's all that, right? It's all that God did. It's amazing. I've never seen water split. I've never seen a rock smacked and water come out of it. I've never seen a cloud of smoke that was not a tornado but God, right? And yet, like all these things they witnessed to, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested God, here's that word, in their heart, right? At the core, at the foundation of who they are, they test God. By demanding the food they craved, they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? You hear that? You hear that testing that they're doing? God gives them water. Oh, yeah, that's great. What about some bread? What about some meat? Right? Like, what? Like, you just got water from a rock. (laughs) And you want bread? Therefore, when the Lord heard, He was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe, there's that belief idea, in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels He sent them food in abundance. He caused east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust. Winged birds like the sand of the sea, he let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled. I don't know about you, but like that sounds a little bit backwards. So let me grumble and complain so that God gives me food in abundance. What is that? Because I know when my kid grumbles and complains, truthfully, there is a part of me that just wants to give in because it's annoying. (laughs) Go away. Here you go. Whatever. But there's also a part of me that's like, "Uh uh-uh. Like, no way are you getting what you want now. Right? Saturday morning, laying on the couch, they come out, Dad, can I have TV? Good morning, hello, how are you? Like, 
can we like at least recognize that I'm a human being and not just a permission given for screen time, right? And like, just because of that, I'm like, no, you're not getting screen time at all today because you didn't even say hello to me, right? And yet God, in his grace, in his mercy, hears their complaining and gives them manna from heaven. He even drops meat in their camp. Like, not like up, up on the hillside where, like, you know, the men folk got to go and catch them and hunt them. Like, in their camp. Like, let me just walk outside my little tent and, oh, there's dinner. That's amazing. God's grace and his mercy, so palpable, so present. And yet, they don't get it. And they ate they, their, and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. God was merciful, that's for sure. He gave them manna. He gave them quail. But you've heard that idea, right, of like being turned over to what we want? Like, God's fine. You don't want to learn how to fear me in a way that I know is good for you. Okay. Here. Here's what you want. I hear you. I'll give you what you want. I'll give it to you abundantly. But your receiving of that, your acceptance of that, there's going to be consequences. When, when we are cared for, that it doesn't require anything of us, it's not as good as it feels or it may seem in that moment, right? When, when we have somebody who just takes care of all of us, all of who we are, all of our needs, and doesn't require anything of us, then it actually makes us extremely susceptible to being harmed, to losing our sense of self, losing our identity, and focusing on the wrong thing. For me, I deal with this so much emotionally. Personally, as well as in the work that I do with clients. Our emotions, our desires, they're our own. And, and they're a part of us that God has given us because he wants us to desire great things. God wants the Israelites to come and ask him for food. He wants the Israelites to come and ask him for water. He wants that. He wants us to desire great, amazing, beautiful things. Things that are even outside of our capacity to hold in our own minds. He wants that of us. He has created us. That's why we have imagination. 
If God didn't want us to be creative, he wouldn't have given us imagination, but we have imagination that can think of things. You know, a big debate in our house right now is, are unicorns real? In your imagination, right? Definitely. Have you seen one? Ah, no, but who knows? So, you know, like, but we can dream these things, we can create these things, and they're beautiful, and they're great. And yet, when, when we don't come to God and trust him to provide, trust him to guide us, trust him, then what it becomes is demands and desires that we put on him to accommodate our flesh. And our flesh isn't bad. God gave us our flesh too. But that's to say only in this perspective, right? When we ask God to meet the desires of our flesh, then we're saying we want God to be this And when we ask God for our provision of a need, and we leave it open, and we trust, and we have faith, that, that's where God can really show us how big he is. That's where we can learn that fearing him is for our good and not for our destruction. Verse 32, in spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. Yet, you know, they're not completely, our ancestors were not completely absent of, of thought. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit uh, for sake of time, but um, this is a really difficult point, right? to see that God's wrath and anger comes against the nation of Israel in taking life. It's a little bit hard to understand in light of the character of who God is. And in this psalm, we see extreme, extreme contrasts of God's anger and his wrath and his mercy. He is so gracious. And if we remember back to Abraham, we remember that it was God who walked through the sacrifice, not Abraham with him. And so in all of this, God never, never forgets that he made the covenant. He never forgets that we, even in our waywardness, are still flesh, are still his children. So God's anger that gets expressed to Israelites as, like, loss of life, which is huge, huge consequence. Even though that's expression of his anger, it's his discipline because he loves us. 
And that's hard for us to understand because we value life so much. And we, we, we see individuals and we understand it. And it's like, well, how could God let somebody, you know, like a, a, a soldier of Israel who truly loved him, how could he let him die on the field? Yeah. It's a, it's a fair question. And it's one that I don't have a specific answer for. But what I can say is that God never forsook the Israelites. God never leaves us. We leave him. And when we leave him and we fear other things and we don't fear God, we remove ourselves from the protection of the fear of the Lord. And we put ourselves at danger and we put ourselves at risk. And this is why we need to remember the struggles of those who have gone before us. Because of the desires of the flesh, the desires of our culture and what we get bombarded with and consumerism and all of that can be very confusing and can trick us into thinking that we need something and we want God to give it to us. I'm sure most of us could say a little extra cash is not a bad thing. And it's not. But if you say that to yourself enough, we start focusing on not having enough cash. And then it's, how do I get more cash? What do I need to do? And we stop fearing the Lord and trusting him to provide. And we forget his amazing works. I mean, if he made water come out of a rock, how much more will he not be with us in our times of need too? God uses his anger to instill that fear because he's trying to shape his chosen people into being a nation of God. And so he allows them to experience what it's like to live outside of God's covering so that they might learn and have an experience which creates a foundation of belief in him. And over and over again, they don't take the lesson. They don't take responsibility for their part in coming to the God. And it's not, it's not a big part they have, right? Abraham didn't walk through the covenant. God made the covenant with his people. But we have the commandment of Deuteronomy. We have that call, that request of God to love him with all of who we are and love others in the same manner. We provoke God when we desire or demand of God provisions or desires of the flesh. And when we distrust God to provide despite his promise. When we do those things, then we are saying, God, no thank you. We're going to live here. And we remove ourselves from that covering. And what we do is we leverage God's mercy against our desires of the flesh. God, I'll believe in you if you provide for me here. God, I'll do this. I'll follow you. I'll obey that commandment if you meet me here. And then God's wrath comes against us, and we're like, okay, okay, sorry, you're right. 
until he relents, and then we go back. We need to keep in mind that pattern in Israel because we have that capability in ourselves, individually and corporately, and as people of God globally. We have that capability. We have that propensity. And so we have to accept the responsibility for our part, which is to walk in the way that God has put before us. And when we walk in the way that God has put before us, then we fear him. We are then protected and provided for. Our faith grows. Because God desperately, desperately desires and has made a covenant with us to make us his chosen people, to shape us, to mold us into who he has called us, into children of God, into heirs, into his holy people. The psalm ends with God, with the psalmist highlighting that God has rejected Ephraim, but he has not rejected his covenant because he goes with Judah. And we know that out of the tribe of Judah comes David. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. And so we see that God chooses a man to shepherd Israel because they, weren't, they were rejecting God's shepherding. And so he chooses David to represent this on earth. And then we know that David, right, becomes this picture of our Savior. And Jesus came, and he calls himself the good shepherd. And Jesus, in his teachings, in his parables, in his riddles, were for the shaping of us into the body of Christ. And so when we walk in that teaching, when we walk in relationship with God, we're saying, God, we are willing to be shaped into your body. We're willing to be shaped into the identity that you have given to us as heirs, as children of God. That is a celebration we're looking towards on Christmas. Is the celebration of a savior, of a shepherd, who's going to be raised up. This morning, though we sit in the struggle of generations of followers who failed to fear the Lord. And I invite you over this next week to sit there. Allow yourself to spend time there. Allow yourself to tolerate that tension of having failed. That tension of choosing desires of our flesh over the fear of the Lord. Because when we can tolerate that tension, then we actually are embracing a vulnerability that allows God so much permission to shape us, to guide us, 
He might not pull you out of a struggle you're in, but he will show you he is in it with you. He will show you he's got you. And he might not keep you from feeling the pain of it. He might not keep you from even experiencing consequence, trials, difficulty in your life. But don't let that tension, don't let that difficulty drive you towards asking of him something of the flesh. Let that difficulty drive you into letting him show you how good he is, how amazing he is, how miraculous he can show up and be present in your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you. for the record of the sins of those who have gone before us. God, we thank you for for not being afraid of the failures of those who have gone before us. That you can show us and you can point them out to us that we could learn and grow and not walk in the same way. God, I ask your spirit to just convict us where we need conviction. Show us parts of us that we still withhold from you so that we may receive the goodness. We may receive the shaping and the molding that you so deeply desire and that we may walk in the fear of the Lord. Amen. Amen.